you are now listening to the place for biblical end times truth, the Remnant Report. I am your host, the Remnant Warrior. Here, we are dedicated to equipping the Remnant for the tribulation that must shortly come to pass, as well as reaching the lost at any cost. to not love our lives even unto death. We serve a risen living Savior, so death is not the end, and we know that we will overcome the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, because we love not We're going to look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 28. We're continuing our series on end times, eschatology. We're looking, uh, we're kind of just going through it slowly, step by step, uh, looking at the main passages that refer to uh, future events or to events that are usually considered to be related with the second coming of Christ. And Matthew chapter 24 is a place that we have chosen to start. It's the Olivet Discourse, and we've been going through it for the last few videos, and we're probably going to continue to go through another four or five videos just on that passage alone. But in this video, we want to really touch in on uh, what the abomination of desolation is. Jesus gives us clear interpretation of what that is, how it happened, uh, what event that is referring to. And so that's very clear. Jesus' words are clear on that. But there's some other things about it that are not so clear. And so we want to go ahead and jump in a little bit into the book of Daniel. Uh, We won't cover the book of Daniel today, but we're just going to touch on some passages there because it relates to this phrase, the abomination of desolation. And I think as we look at that, uh, towards the end of the video, as we look at those passages and consider those issues, we'll see why it's difficult to come up with an airtight theological system related to eschatology because there are some things that it just always seem don't quite fit. And I think there are some principles about why that is so. And so towards the end of the video, we'll get into that issue. But we want to just go through this passage. And then, of course, what we're using, we're going through Matthew 24 as our baseline text. But then we're looking at Mark chapter 13 and Luke 21 to give us insight into that passage because they're parallel passages and they say things a little bit differently that can help us to understand. Now, as I've stated before, I do not have a strong uh, view on these matters. There are certain passages that I think are very clear, uh, but how to connect them all together, I'm not quite clear on that. And so that's one of the reasons we're going through this study is for me to kind of work through it again. I've been saved for 30 years. I've gone into this topic many times, but I always come out still scratching my head, trying to fit all the pieces together. Uh, But another reason we're looking at this is because we want to see that as we do biblical theology, as we study the scripture and we look at each passage in context, we want to be careful how we jump to make a theological system, how we jump to put all the pieces together so that we can say, now I understand the whole big picture and I understand all things and we can fight with our fellow Christians about the system that we have. So we want to look into that and kind of use this as an example of how to go through scriptures step by step and then how in the fear of God to connect them together into a theological whole. Now, before we jump into the passage for today, I want to quickly go back to the passage that we went through uh, in the last video, which was namely verses 4 through 14. One thing that I kind of underplayed in that video is in verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, I pointed out that it's very hard for us to nail down exactly Uh, when this would be fulfilled, when it would be that all nations would hear. Would it be when every nation state hears, when every country that's on the planet has at least somebody who's heard the gospel, or is it when every single individual hears the gospel, or, you know, what what is the requirements for meeting this fulfillment uh, that that all nations, as a testimony to all nations. And so I pointed out that it's not very clear when that's going to be. Nevertheless, whether it's clear or not, Jesus is telling us that that is the sign of the end of the age. 
when the nations have heard the gospel and what, however we interpret that, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout all the world as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. So when all ethnos, that is ethnic groups, whenever they hear, however we define an ethnic group, when they hear and they hear this testimony, then that is the sign that the end of the age will come. Now this lines up, it, it being kind of nebulous, lines up with what is stated in Acts chapter 1. Jesus, they asked, they asked Jesus, you know, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus answers in verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or the dates which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he's saying, look, don't focus on the exact date that it's going to happen. Instead, focus on the task that I'm giving you to proclaim the gospel to all nations. So this is why we see here in Matthew chapter 24, where he says, and this gospel, the kingdom will be preached throughout all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In other words, he's saying, okay, the sign for the end of the age is that the gospel will be preached to all nations, but you don't know exactly when that is, so just keep preaching. When you get it done, then the end will come and everything will be clear. And so I just wanted to touch on that to kind of clarify that this has answered uh, one of those questions. Because if we look to uh, verse 3, And he sat on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So one of the things that he's going to answer is, what is the sign of the end of the age? And so the preaching of the gospel to all nations as a witness to them, this is the sign of the end of the age. When that happens, then the end of the age will come to pass. Now, as we jump into verses 15 through 28, let's go ahead and review exactly what questions the apostles asked. Now, the situation in verse uh, chapter 24, verse 1 through 2, is they, they point out the temple buildings and then Jesus says, you see these buildings here, not one of these will stand on one another. They're all going to be torn down. And so then the disciples ask these questions in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, they came to him, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So here we see three questions. When will these things be? In other words, when will this temple be destroyed? When will the things that we're looking at take place? When will they be destroyed? Second one is, what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age or and the sign of the end of the age? Okay, but there's if we look, flip over to Mark chapter 13, and it's going to be the same as Luke chapter 21, we see that the questions are a bit different. If we jump to verse 4, it says, tell us when will these things happen? Okay, so when is the temple and all the, the, the buildings that they were looking at, when are they going to be destroyed? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Okay, so they're not asking for the sign of the end of the age or the second coming. They're asking, what's the sign that, that these temple, this temple is about to be destroyed? Okay, so that's important as we go through this passage that we're looking at today. Because that is indeed what, what Jesus is going to answer. He's going to answer, what is the sign that this, this temple is about to be destroyed? Let's look to verse, Matthew chapter 24, verse 23. And I want us to first note what Jesus is not answering in this passage that we're looking at today, okay? So verse 23, it says, Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Listen, I have told you beforehand. So again, we see, just like we saw in the first passage in verse 4 through 14, that there are some things that are going to happen, be happening that people are going to look to as signs. They're going to see what's taking place and they're going to be anxious and say, look, this must be the sign. This, this, it must be about to take place. And because of that, Many people are going to follow after false Christs and false prophets. People are going to say, all this chaos is happening around us. We need to look for Jesus. Where's he at? Oh, there he is. And so they're going to run into the, you know, the desert place. It's going to goes on here in verse 26. So if they say to you, look, he is in the desert. Do not go out. Don't go there. Or look, he is in the private chambers. Do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So here he's telling us that 
even though people are anxious and they think that all that's happening is a sign that he is about to return, it's not a sign. He tells us that the sign of the coming of the Son of Man, the sign that Jesus is about to return and at the end of the age will be very clear. Like lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, it will be abundantly clear to everybody. Everybody will know that it's happening. It's not something where there's going to be, you know, Jesus coming and, and we hear about it and we read some verses and, and they they puzzle some things together and say, see, that means Jesus is over there. You know, he's in Korea or uh, Jesus is over there in China or uh, some other cult will say like, you know, this is the return of Jesus. He's come back as a woman. He's come back in a different form. He's come back a reincarnated. Whatever they say, that is not what is taking place. And so we shouldn't believe it just because we get anxious about what's going on. No, the sign that Jesus is about to return will be very clear for everyone. And so we need to understand that in this passage, verses 15 particularly through um, 22, 15 through 22, Jesus is not going to be answering the question, what will be the sign of the coming of the Son of Man and of the end of the age? He's not going to answer those two questions. He's going to be answering something different. And so we're going to have to look into what that would be. So let's go to verse 15. And before looking elsewhere, let's just see if from the context, we can figure out what he would be answering. Okay, verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So when we read this, it, this is where people are going to jump off and come to a lot of different conclusions because from our perspective, this, this wording, the way that Jesus words this here, or the phraseology that he uses is not necessarily so familiar to us. And so at 2,000 years later, uh, as most of us being Gentiles, not so familiar with all the prophets and all the writings of the scriptures, when we hear this, people can come online, they can go into a pulpit, they can write a book, and they can say that this means just about anything and weave some things together and make it so. And so it's very easy to get thrown off by this terminology. Now, thankfully, we have Luke, which we'll, we'll look at in a little while, that puts it into language for Gentiles, people that they can understand that don't have such a, that are not so immersed in the Old Testament uh, prophets. But we can uh, look at that in a minute. But first, let's just try to go through this passage and see if we can see from the context. So, first of all, it's talking about the holy place. So we would assume that that's the temple, that that's Jerusalem, that that's, that area, and that would be in line with the context of what was spoken in verse 1. When they pointed to the temple buildings, and Jesus answered them and said, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So, this holy place, speaking of Jerusalem, particularly the temple, is exactly what they were looking at. That's where they were sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they were looking over the temple complex, and they were asking Jesus, when will the destruction of these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? So we can see that that's the context, but let's go on and make sure that that is so. Verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, so he's talking about something happening in Israel. Goes on, verse 17, let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not return to take his clothes. Woe to those who are with child and to those who are in nurse in those days. Pray that you escape, your escape will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Okay, not, why not in the winter? In the winter because it's hard to travel in the winter. Why not on the Sabbath? Because if it's in Judea, if this is happening in Judea in the, the land of Israel, then it's going to be hard to travel on the days whenever all the shops are closed, you can't get any supplies, you can't get anything. It's difficult to travel on a Sabbath because everything is closed. Goes on, verse 21. For then will be great tribulation, such as has not happened since the beginning of the world until now, no, nor ever shall be. So here we also get a sign that whatever happens in this time, this great sorrow that's coming upon the land of Israel, when it happens, it's going to be something so great, so devastating, that something like that in Israel is not going to happen after that. Because he says that, this has not happened since the beginning of the world, and it's not going to happen again in that land. It's not going to happen, oh, has the wording here, the beginning of the world until now, no, nor ever shall be. So it, in past history and in future history, nothing is going to be comparable with what is going to happen in Israel at that time. Um, verse 22, 
Unless those days were shortened, no one would be saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Okay, so there's something, if we just read the context, there's something that's going to happen in the land of Israel that's going to be devastating. And people, whenever they see the abomination of desolation, whatever that is, they should get out of Judea as quickly as possible. And hopefully, they won't be during the winter. Hopefully, it won't be during Sabbath. So they will be able to travel. So they will be able to escape quickly and get out of that area because something is going to happen in that area that is going to be so devastating that hasn't happened in past history and nor is going to happen in future history. It's something that's going to happen and devastate that place. So if we jump back to verse uh, 3, as he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? That is the destruction of the temple buildings that they're looking at. And we also know from Mark and from Luke, And what will be the sign that these are about to take place? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, so we have four options for what is being answered in this passage, 15 to 22 in particular. Now, could it be saying, when will these things be? When will be the destruction of the temple that we are looking at? Yes, that would fit with what is being said. But something fits with it even more. What will be the sign that these things are about to take place? What will be the sign that this temple is about to be destroyed? Okay, and that would be verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the whole place, let the reader understand. So when you see this happening, this abomination desolation, know that this is a sign that everything, uh, that the temple and all of its buildings are about to be torn down. Because he goes on to tell them, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down and take anything out of his house. In other words, when you see this, it's about to take place. Get out of there. Okay, so that's, and we know from history, in AD 70, whenever uh, the Roman armies came in and surrounded Jerusalem and they they put Jerusalem in a siege, when that took place, the believers, the Christians, remembered this prophecy and they fled. They got out of Jerusalem because it was under siege for about three years and then finally was destroyed in AD 70. And so the Christians, when they saw this take place, they knew what Jesus had warned and they escaped. So from history, we understand how the Christians understood this uh, teaching here. And from the context here, we can see that it has something to do with Judea, a great woe that was coming upon that land, and something to do with the abomination of desolation being a sign that those things were about to take place. So we can appeal to history, we can appeal to the context of Luke chapter 24, but there's still a little mystery in in regards to what the abomination of desolation is. And so we want to go look at Luke chapter 21 and see if this confirms what we're concluding up to this point. Okay, starting in verse, verse 7. They asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when this is about to take to happen? Okay, now let's flip to the parallel passage, starting in verse 20. When you see the surra- when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has drawn near. So here it doesn't say when you see the abomination of desolation, uh, let the reader understand as is written in Daniel, but it says when you see this when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation or its destruction has drawn near. So this is showing us that it's a sign that the, the temple and its buildings are about to be destroyed. So this answers the question in verse 7, Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when this is about to happen? The sign that the temple is about to be destroyed and Jerusalem completely sacked is in verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies then you know that its desolation has drawn near. This is a very clear answer to a very clear question. Okay, so how does it connect with abomination of desolation? Okay, well, what would be the, it says, let's look back there in verse 24. It uses this phraseology. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel standing in the holy place. So let's ask the question, what would be the holy place in Luke chapter 20, 21, verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So what would be the holy place? Jerusalem is the holy place, particularly the temple that it was home to. So when you see Jerusalem, the holy place, 
surrounded by armies. So what would be the, when you see the abomination, what would be the abomination? The Roman armies coming in to sack Jerusalem would be the abomination. It's something terrible. It's something awful. It's an abomination. So when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, so when you see the holy place surrounded by an abomination, then you know that it's desolation has drawn near the abomination of desolation. So the army is going to come and bring desolation, bring destruction. It's going to destroy and sack Jerusalem. So we see verse 20 is a very clear interpretation of Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Like I said, in, in Matthew and in Mark, often they're writing, since they're writing to Jews, they're writing with terminology that Jews would be familiar with. But Luke was writing to Gentiles, and so he speaks in a language that's more easy for us to understand. When you see Jerusalem, the holy place, surrounded by armies, the abomination, then you know that it's desolation, it's destruction, has drawn near. So that is the sign that these things, the destruction of the temple and all the buildings, that these things are about to take place. Then you have known, then you know that its desolation has drawn near. And some might say, well, yeah, but that's talking about something else than the abomination of desolation, or, you know, it's talking about a future event. It's not talking about a future event if we go by the context. The context is they were asking, you know, when are these temple, this temple going to be destroyed? The one that we're looking at, when is this going to happen? And what's the, going to be the sign that's about to take place? So the answer would be when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, know that its destruction is at hand. Okay, so that would be a clear answer to that contextually. If we try to bring theology and we try to bring our, our charts and our eschatology into this, then we're going to end up twisting this verse. Okay, so it's, it's very clear that it's talking about what was, what was happening then. But we say, oh, but, but that's a different context. It's not talking about the same thing. Well, as we read on, we'll see that it is the same, it's a parallel verse with the abomination of desolation. Verse 21, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The exact same context. It's using the same terminology, the same words, the same warnings in the same overall context. Flee to the mountains, let those who are in the city depart and let not those who are in the country enter it. So when you see the armies surround Jerusalem, this happened, I believe, in 67 AD, maybe 68, when they surrounded Jerusalem and they begin to lay siege to, or when they begin to, uh, you know, quarantine, and I can't think of the word right now, when they sieged, when they, they laid siege to it, when that happened, then the Christians were supposed to flee and they were not supposed to stay there and they're not supposed to try to go into Jerusalem and maybe hope that it's all going to work out. No, this was a sign that the destruction was near. Verse 22, for these are the day of, uh, days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Okay, so what vengeance is being talked about here? Now, if you flip back before Matthew 24 to get the context of what vengeance would be spoken of in Luke 21, the parallel passage. In Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 33 through verse uh, 39, Jesus gives a parable about a vineyard. It says that, and basically the meaning of it is that God has given Israel a place, but they were supposed to bear fruit for him, but they didn't bear fruit. Instead, they rejected the prophets. They even are going to kill Christ. And so in verse 40, Jesus says, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will, those, what will he do to those vine dressers, those that treated his prophets poorly? Verse 41, They said, He will severely destroy those wicked men and rent his vineyard to other vine dressers who will give him their fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, have you not never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whoever it falls, it will crush him. So he's talking about judgment on the nation of Israel. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But as they tried to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him as a prophet. Then he goes on from here in verse in chapter 22. Jesus spoke to them again by parables saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants and call, to call them who were invited to the wedding, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my supper, my oxen and fattened calves, are killed and everything is ready, come to the wedding banquet. So again, this is the prophets, and then ultimately this is John the Baptist, and then uh, Messiah coming and proclaiming the wedding fe fe feast is ready. Okay, verse five. 
But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his business. The rest took his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. When the king heard about it, he was angry. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. So we see that already leading up to Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus is going to talk about the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in AD 70, before he gets that, he's already warning that generation of the things that are to come because they are rejecting the Messiah, that he's going to burn up their city. He's speaking in a parable here, but he's obviously referring to the nation uh, of Israel. Uh, If we go on in chapter 23, uh, we see that Jesus denounces the scribes and the Pharisees. And then in verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen, Hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. Look, your house is left to you desolate. It's left left destroyed, empty, broken down. For I tell you, you shall not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then immediately it leads into Jesus departed from the temple, which was leaving when his disciples came to show him the temple buildings. Jesus answered them, do you not see that all these things the ones that they were looking at, the temple they were looking at. Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Okay? And then he goes on and gives, they ask him the question and then he shares the Olivet Discourse which we're going through. Now flip back over to Luke chapter 21. So we see this happening. So verse 22. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who nurse in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. So what is the vengeance that needs to be fulfilled? It's all that was prophesied that if the the Jewish people would reject the Messiah, then they would suffer under the, if they would fall on the stone, the stone would crush them. Okay, and this is what Jesus is saying that you have rejected me and now I'm going to come and destroy and burn your city. And so this is the wrath that needed to be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who nurse, for in that there will be great distress in the land, the land of Israel, the land of Judea, and wrath upon this people, wrath upon the people of Israel in that generation. I didn't touch on one thing in Matthew chapter 23. It says this, verse 33, You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the judgment of hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some you will scourge in the synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come on this generation. Okay, so... Here in verse Luke 21, verse 22, for these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Uh, for there will be wrath, great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. So that generation, it's like there had been a cup being slowly filled up generation after generation as the people of Israel continued to reject the prophets, uh, continued to reject the word of God. And there were slowly, there was wrath being built up. And so Jesus is telling us that in that generation, the generation that rejected Messiah, that in that time, all that wrath was going to be poured out on that generation. It was going to fulfill everything. All the vengeance that had been built up was going to come down on that generation. This is the clear teaching of the context of Matthew chapter 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13. This is Jesus coming because when Jesus came, he did not only come to die on the cross, rise from the dead, save those that believe in him. He also came as a prophet to the people of Israel. And as he prophesied the people of Israel, because they rejected him, he's saying, you've rejected the prophets up until now. Now you're rejecting the son. Now wrath is going to come upon this people for this. This, The city is going to be destroyed. And this is exactly what he's talking about in this passage. Then verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive to all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So what will happen in 70 AD? The armies will surround Jerusalem. All the Christians will flee and get out of there because they know that's a sign that the destruction of the temple and all the things that they were looking at is about to be destroyed. Then What will come will be a great devastation and destruction. This destruction of the city, this destruction of Jerusalem, will be a a fulfilling of all the wrath 
uh, on the people of Israel because they had rejected Messiah and the prophets and the word of God. And this generation was going to suffer the wrath of that. And what was going to happen to them after that? They were going to be scattered throughout all nations. They were going to be led. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led away captive to all nations. That's what happened in 70 AD. The Jews were scattered. And from that point on until now, until recently, whenever the, when many of the Jews started to go back into the land of Israel, uh, they still have no peace. They're still constantly at war. And so uh, because they're con- the majority of them are still rejecting Messiah. But nevertheless, there's some people back in Israel. And there is uh, a nation state. Of course, it's a secular state. It's not a theocracy. It's not anything like that. But they came back in the land. So what we see is that in history, 70 AD led to verse 24. Then they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led away captive to all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay, so do we want to say that Jerusalem will be trampled on, the Gent- and on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled? So that now 1948 is somehow a sign that uh, this is being, you know, fulfilled now? Maybe. I'm, I'm not sure about that. But what we can be sure from this text is that 70 AD, when the armies surrounded and then destroyed Jerusalem, that was the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now flip back over to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15. So when you see the abomination, this is a quote, abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So we're the reader, we're reading this, and we want to understand what this is talking about. What is the abomination of desolation that was spoken of in Daniel the prophet? Now, as we go back to Daniel, we're going to have to be very strict with ourselves because we're going to want to connect some things that aren't so quickly or easily connected or maybe not connected at all. And so we want to be very careful with the context of each passage. So let's go ahead and flip back to Daniel chapter 8. Look at starting verse 9 through 14. Okay, now we're just going to scratch this. We're not. This is not a study on Daniel. We haven't got anywhere near that. And uh, so that'll take some time before we get to this. But we do need to address this because Jesus pointed back to Daniel as something that was being fulfilled. And so a lot of times what will happen in different eschological systems, they will connect and lump everything together that's in Daniel. Every time it has similar phraseology and they'll say that's all talking about the same thing. And then oftentimes they'll point it and say it's, talking about the Antichrist coming in the rebuilt temple, you know, in the future, okay? Maybe all that is true, but we do want to pay attention to the context and see how, uh, what it's actually telling us. So let's go to Daniel chapter 8, verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. It grew, grew great, even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Indeed, he magnified himself even to the prince of the hosts, and from him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was and the place of his sanctuary was cast down because of rebellion. An army was given to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifice, and it cast truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said to that certain saint which spoke. How long will shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? Verse 14, and he said to me, for, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed properly. Okay, now I want us to note a couple things. One, it talks about the sanctuary will be cleansed. So what is being spoken of here is not the destruction of the temple, even though he uses words like a transgression of desolation, um, you know, the sanctuary and the host being trodden underfoot. It sure seems to give the picture of the destroying of the temple. Okay, but it's not. And we'll, we see that because it says, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed properly. But we see it further if we understand when this took place. In verse 20, the ram which you saw having two horns represents the king's of Media and Persia. The rough goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now the broken horn and the four horns that stood up in his place are four kingdoms that shall stand up out of his nation, but not with his power. So what is this all talking about? First of all, we know it's not talking about something during the Roman Empire, so it's not talking about the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD because that was the Roman Empire. It's talking about 
the Medias per Media and Persia, and then it was taken over by the by Greece. What was the Great Horn? That was Alexander the Great. And then when Alexander the Great died, it was divided into four different uh, places. Now, one of those kings, one of those little horns, grew up and went into the Pleasant Land, went into Israel, and then went in and uh, desecrated the temple. We know who this was from history. The history of this is written in you know First and Second Maccabees, uh, in the Apocrypha of the Old Testament. It's written that Antiochus Epiphanes came in and he was the one that set up an abomination. I think it was that he sacrificed uh, swine's blood in the altar and he, there was a great internal war between the, the Greeks and uh, some re rebels in the people uh, of Israel. And so that, that was the Maccabees, the family of the Maccabees. Okay, and so this took place. This is a prophecy about that. We know that it is not something that was a prophecy about AD 70, because it wasn't about Rome, but it was about Greece. That was an empire that came before Rome. Now, if we switch back over to Daniel chapter 11, we see this again referred to. If you go through the whole context, you'll see the, the context of the history of the Medo-Persia, and then the, the, basically it gives us the history of the Greek empire. And then once we get to verse 31 and 32, it says this, His army shall rise up and desecrate, the sanctuary fortress. They shall abolish the daily sacrifice and set up the abomination that makes desolate. By flatteries, he will corrupt those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will be strong and take action. And so who are the people that are strong and take action? It's the Maccabees. It's those that are written of, those that fought against the Grecian desolation or uh, desecration of the temple. But here we see the wording is so similar to what we looked at in Matthew chapter 24. It says, The abomination that makes desolate. They shall abolish the daily sacrifice and set up the abomination that makes desolate. And so this is, is so similar that this is why it's so quickly connected uh, with, with Matthew chapter 24. But we need to be very careful. So what's going on here? We have something that happened in history. The abomination, of de abomination that makes desolate. Uh, his army shall rise, rise up and desecrate the sanctuary fortress. They shall abolish the daily sacrifices. We see all this taking place. This something that happened, and we know when it happened because the scripture tells us. It tells us in, in Daniel chapter 8, it told us very clearly, verses 20 and 21, that this was talking about the Greek Empire. And we know from history that this is talking about Antiochus in the time of the Maccabees, before the coming of the Roman Empire. So this must be clear. Now, does this have a second meaning? Could this be pointing to uh, AD 70 in a secondary fulfillment? Maybe. Could this be po pointing to something at the end of time as a secondary fulfillment? Maybe. But before we make that jump, we better be very, very sure that we've got all of our ducks in a row and that we're really clear about the connections. We can't just connect things because that sounds good and it makes it easier because now we've got a perfectly a line chart that fits well. That's not what we need to do. Now we need to find out from the scripture, is there something that really makes it clear to us? But now let's turn back to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. Now this is, from my perspective, this is one, if not the most difficult passage in scripture to understand, particularly when you get into verses, uh, when you get into verse 27, maybe even 20 parts of 26. But Part of it is clear. So we're going to start in verse 24, and we're going to read what this is about, and we're going to see what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. Okay, verse 24. Seventy weeks have been determined for your people and upon your holy city to finish transgression and to make an end of sins and to make atonement for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision prophecy and to anoint the most holy or the most holy place. Okay, so 70 weeks. Now, this is going to be 70 times 7. So, this is, if my math's right, it's going to be 490 years. Now, I'm not going to break down why we think this is years, but we'll see it as we go through the passage. Okay, and what is going to happen within those 70 years? Because this is Daniel asking, look, we've been exiled. The exile is supposed to end after 70 years, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah. So, when is this going to take place? When is all this that you are giving me in visions and dreams, when is this going to take place? And so, God basically tells him, within 490 years, this is going to take place. Determined for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, okay, to, get, to make an end of sins, so to deal with sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, to make atonement, 
and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy in that words to fulfill vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place or to anoint the most holy. So it could either be to anoint the, the Messiah or to anoint a new temple or whatever it is. These, this is why these passages are unclear because it could be interpreted in different ways. But verse 25, know therefore, understand that from the going forth of the command to restore the rebuild and rebuild Jerusalem until the Prince Messiah shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, seven weeks. So seven times, uh, seven times, seven, so it would be 49 years. So for the time that there is some sort of proclamation given to rebuild Jerusalem, that means after the ex exile in Babylon, then there's going to be 49 years, there's going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So we're going to have the, don't make me do math here. So it's going to be the 49, uh, 49 years plus 62 times 7. That's how we'll do it. 62 times 7. Okay, and that's going to get us to, uh, instead of the 70 weeks, that's going to get to the 69th week. Okay, so there's going to be 69 weeks. So it's going to be 490, take away 7, so 483 years. Okay, so 483 years are going to be from the time of rebuilding Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah. Until Messiah, the Prince, comes. Till the Prince Messiah shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, so 483 years. Now, depending on where we start, uh, you know, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, we get to Jesus. But the point is, it's all going to be about the same period of time. It's going to lead to about the time that Jesus Christ came on the earth, that he was crucified, that he came to Israel. This is the fulfillment. So this is what happened. This was the coming of uh, these are the weeks. I don't know how to put it. Okay. It shall be again with the plaza and moat, even in times of trouble. Verse 26. After the 62 weeks, so that was the seven weeks and then 62 weeks. So that's 483 day, uh, years. So after that, so there's going to be in the seventh week or in the 70th week. So there's 69 weeks have already passed. After the 69th week, in the 70th week, it says this, after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And troops of the prince who shall come shall destroy the city and sanctuary. The end shall come with a flood. So here's the boiling it down with all the math problems here. The pro this prophecy is about the, com the first coming of Jesus Christ. It's about his crucifixion, him being cut off, him bringing an everlasting righteousness, making atonement for sin, putting an end to sin, filling up all prophecy. That's what this passage is about. It's telling us when the Messiah was going to come. And he came, and now after the 69 weeks, that means in the 70th week, it says after the 62 weeks, which is plus the seven weeks, Messiah shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Other versions will say, and but not for himself. In other words, that he, was, he died, but not for himself. And the troops of the prince shall come and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end shall come with the flood. So then there's going to be an army. Okay, after Jesus is, dies on the cross, after he rises from the dead, then there's going to be an army. It doesn't say it's going to happen in the 70th week. It says that it's going to happen after Messiah is cut off during the 70th week. Then the end shall come with a flood, and to the end war and desolations are determined. If we go back to Luke chapter 21, here's what we read. Verse uh, 23, but woe to those who are pregnant and those who nurse in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led away captive to all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so here it said, verse 26, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the troops of the prince shall come and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall come with a flood until the end war of desolations are determined. This is the prophecy that Jesus is referring back to. This is when he says, uh, so let the reader understand, when the abomination of desolation stands in the holy place, then you know that its destruction is at hand. Okay, this is what he was referring to. He was referring to something that happened in the time of the Roman Empire, not in the time of the Grecian Empire. But as we look, verse 27, and he shall make a firm covenant with many for one week. Is this Messiah shall make a covenant with them for one week with the people of Israel? Maybe. Is this the prince that shall come uh, that shall make a covenant for one week with them? Probably not from the, the way the wording is, but the wording, like I said, is very difficult to know, so it could be. But in the middle of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the offering to cease. 
So is this the prince that will cause the offering and the sacrifice to cease? Or is this Messiah that because of his death on the cross will cause the offering and sacrifice to be no longer necessary? It's hard to know. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. So is verse 27 a parallel of the of verse 26? If we take it as a parallel, then we know that he, Messiah, will make a co covenant for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall cause sacrifice and offering to cease because he will be cut off after three and a half years of ministry. So in the middle of the week, and on the wing of abomination shall come one, the prince, who shall make desolate and the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. That is upon uh, Jerusalem for killing Messiah. So that, for me, that makes the most sense. 26 and 27 are parallel verses, but we know whatever verse 27 is talking about, we know, or I guess we can say that even 27, we know how Jesus is interpreting this. Jesus is interpreting this to talk about the Roman Empire coming and destroying the city of Jerusalem. We know that because he's the one that says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, he's not talking about something that happened in the Grecian uh, Empire. He's talking about something that happened in the Roman Empire. So he's talking about Daniel chapter 9, not ta Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11. And how he interprets that is what happened in AD 70. So this is a very clear interpretation of Daniel chapter uh, 9, verse 24 through 27. Now, we might not like that interpretation because it doesn't fit with our eschatology, but that is the interpretation of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. This is him giving us revelation and understanding to what happened in Daniel chapter 9. Does it also have some connection with Daniel chapter 8 and chapter 11? Not directly because it's not happening in the empire that Jesus was living in and ministering in. And so it's talking about a different event. Now, is it possible? Is it possible that this, what is happening in Daniel chapter 9 and the same thing that's happening in Luke 21, Matthew 24, that that has a secondary fulfillment in the future that is also pointing to something that's a little bit more like Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11. Yes, indeed it is. I, I don't know how to conclude that at this point in my study, but it's possible that there's foreshadowing taking place in what happened with Antiochus pointing to something in the future. And what happened in Matthew chapter 24, and we'll get into the reasons why this might be the case, is also has a secondary fulfillment pointing to something that's still going to happen in the future. And so we're going to have to look into that as we continue to go through it. And basically in the next section, we'll be able to kind of consider how that works together. But what I want us to see is that we can't be so quick to connect everything together just because it has the same wording. We first have to really nail down the context. Jesus, according to the context in Matthew 24, is not talking about Daniel 8 or Daniel chapter 11 because those happened already before he even came on the scene. They happened through Antiochus Epiphanes in the Greek Empire. We can read about it in the book of Maccabees. It took place. It was, the, it was a desecration of the temple that later was cleansed. But he, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is referring back to Daniel chapter 9, which has similar language as 8 and 11, but it's a different context because it's talking about when the Messiah came. So it's talking about the Roman Empire because we read in Daniel chapter 7 and in Daniel chapter uh, 2 that the Messiah is going to come, that the kingdom of God is going to begin through Messiah in the time of Rome, not in the time of Greece. And so we've got to really pay attention to the details before we get this big overarching view and chart that kind of is like, yeah, I've got all the answers and here's what's going to happen next. No, that's not how we, uh, we tremble at the word of God. That's not how we walk in the fear of God. Instead, we walk carefully and we tread carefully over the word of God. Before we finish out, let's, let's go to Daniel chapter 11. I want to make us a little bit more confused. Okay? It, it, it's actually my goal that we be confused. Because if we're confused, that means we're being honest. As far as I can tell, there's a lot of stuff that is confusing doesn't mean that there are no answers. It doesn't mean that I don't expect to find answers. It just means that, that we're, we're so quick to receive answers. We're so quick to make connections. And it's better for us just to be utterly bewildered by the text and let us ruminate on it for a while and see if there really are any answers. I don't know how to put it better than that. But if we look at Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, his army shall rise up. Now, this is talking in the Grecian Empire. This is talking about Antiochus. 
His army shall rise up and desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and they shall abolish the daily sacrifice and set up the abomination that makes desolate. By flattery he will corrupt many, those who wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God shall be strong and take exploit, do exploits. And then verse 36. The king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak blasphemy, blasphemous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper until the until the indignation is accomplished, for that which is determined shall be done. So this is Antiochus. But if you flip to Second Thessalonians chapter two, you can figure out why people want to make connections. Because Second Thessalonians chapter two, we know context. That's Antiochus. But Thessalonians chapter two says this in verse seven. For the mystery of lawlessness is already already working. Only he who is now restraining will him will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his presence. So notice, whoever this person is, it's somebody that is going to be living at the end of time, when Jesus Christ comes again visibly. Verse 9, even him whose coming is in accordance with the working of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of unrighteousness among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, they be saved. Therefore, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might not be that they might be condemned, who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So we say that this man looks an awful lot like it would go oh sorry, I missed it. In verse 3. Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless a falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself as God. It is very understandable why we would connect that with Daniel chapter 11 because the, the phraseology is so similar. Even though we know Daniel chapter 11 already took place in history, But we see that the Apostle Paul is pointing to something in the future that's going to happen at the time of the coming of Jesus Christ physically and visibly from heaven. And so we're able to see that the scriptures have some some idea of type and shadow and fulfillment, not only about Christ, but also about Christ's second coming. So in the first coming, he had, there was prophecies that people didn't understand until it took place, then they understood it. In the same way, there's some prophecies that we see here written about the second coming of Christ that maybe that's the reason why it's a little bit unclear for us because until it takes place, it's not going to be abundantly clear. And this is a, a problem with those that try to make all this stuff that is a bit unclear and try to nail it down and then not only nail it down, it's, it's one thing to say, look, I, I've studied this, I've come to convictions about this, I believe that this is right. It's another thing to then say, if somebody disagrees with you about the timing of the rapture or they disagree with you about you know, the, the nature of the Antichrist and who he's going to be and you're so stuck on it that you become sectarian and you break off fellowship with other believers in Christ because of those issues, because of something that scripturally should not be absolutely clear to us because we're not prophets. I'm not a prophet. I don't know, maybe you're a prophet. But if we're not prophets, then why would we understand everything that the prophets wrote and that they were pointed to as the apostles? So let's look at uh, some examples in closing. Let's look at some examples of the Old Testament prophecies that were not clear, okay? I'm just gonna briefly look at it here. If we go to Isaiah chapter 52, I'm sorry, Isaiah 41. So now Isaiah 40 through 66, I believe, is going to be like a whole section. Now in verse 8, it gives us a very clear definition. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest part. You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. Do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Yes, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So in this section, who is the servant? The servant is very clearly Israel. Those that have been taken from the ends of the earth, those that have been restored. This is Israel, the nation of Israel. But if we flip to Isaiah 52, because 53 is very uh, a well-known passage for as a prophetic scripture about Christ. 
But in 52, it says this in verse 13. See, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and very high. Just as many were astonished at you, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. He shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for that which has not been told them they shall see and that which they had not heard they shall consider. So who is this servant? Wouldn't we infer that the servant is talking about Israel because it referred to him earlier in a same section that it was referring to the nation of Israel? But we know it's not because if we flip to verse 8, now, we, we know that 53 is, is a, a prophetic scripture, but verse 8 says this, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was struck. So whoever this servant is, it's not the nation of Israel, because this servant is dying for the nation of Israel. He's dying for the people of God. So we see that that is kind of unclear. We can understand why... You know, Jews of that time or even Jews of our day that are ignorant of the truth of Christ, that they would try to be, they would be confused in this passage. Is it talking about one person or is it talking about many? If we flip over to Acts, we see how this passage is. If we flip over to Acts chapter 8, whenever Philip came upon the Ethiopian eunuch and he was reading from this passage, it says this, uh, Okay, verse 30. Then Philip ran to him and heard him read from the book of Isaiah the prophet and, and said, Do you understand what you are reading? He said, the Ethiopian eunuch said, How can I unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and a lamb before his shears is silent. So he opened on his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will speak of his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So it's talking about Isaiah chapter 53. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, of whom does the prophet speak? Of himself or someone else? So in Isaiah 53, we could ask the question, is the servant talking about Israel or is it talking about a man? Then if we say it's talking about a man, we could say, well, is it talking about Isaiah suffering for the people of Israel as a prophet or is it talking about someone else? So the, pro the prophecy itself, it had questions in it. Now that it's fulfilled, we can look back and we can see clearly this was talking about Messiah. Even if we say that it was in that time partially fulfilled in Isaiah, but no, the ultimate fulfillment comes in Jesus Christ going to the cross and putting sin, uh, dying for the people of, uh, uh, of God. So we, we see that this is the truth, okay? But in that time, it would have been unclear. Let's look at another in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse... See, verse 13 and 14. It says this, I see the night visions, and there is one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. There was given him a dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that shall not be destroyed. So this is clearly talking about Jesus Christ the son of man, this is what he often called himself, the son of man, that he on the clouds of heaven came before the ancient of days. He received a kingdom. We read about this in Revelation chapter five, that the, the lamb of God was taken and received the scroll from the ancient of days and that he is now has dominion and rules with God. So this is clearly about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we know from the context that this happened during the time of Rome. Oh, it's all so utterly clear, except when we jump over to the interpretation. Because then in verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body and the visions in my head troubled. I approached one of those who were standing by and asked him all the truths of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So Daniel received this. It seems utterly clear to us. It was not clear to Daniel. He was confused by what he saw. For us, we look back and they say, yeah, that was the beginning of Messiah's kingdom in the time of, of Rome. It's a very clear prophecy about Messiah. He came and received all authority in heaven and earth from the Father, and now he sits on the throne, seated next to God, ruling over the nations. So utterly clear. Except now here's the interpretation that is given in verse 26 and 27. But the court shall sit for judgment, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it forever. Then the kingdom, the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of all the kings under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. 
So here the interpretation, we could say that the Son of Man was referring to God's people, to God's saints. So that the Son of Man was just a, you know, a, a representation of the people of God. And so it's not so clear. Of course, now we know it's clear because in Jesus Christ, we are in the Son of Man. And so he is the representative and the head of all of his people. And so we understand that, yeah, we are in Christ, we are in the Son of Man, and so we are also part of that kingdom that will last forever, and we are going to rule and reign with him. That's what the scripture says. But people could be confused before this took place. This is why this principle is so important. Let's go to Luke chapter 24. That we, as believers in Christ, that we do not start with the Old Testament and try to understand the context and then go from there and just understand everything that's going to take place. We don't we don't start with the Old Testament. That's not our foundation. People will argue and say, no, the Old Testament is the beginning of the book, and so that's the foundation. No, the apostles and the prophets, those are going to be the foundation of the new covenant. They give us revelation. Jesus Christ is the very foundation stone. So understanding him, knowing him, when we see Christ, when we know Christ by the Spirit of God, then the veil is taken away, and we're able to understand the Old Covenant. But those that read the Old Covenant without Christ are not able to understand understand the old covenant. But when we come into Christ and through the revelation that's given through the apostles, we read the Old Testament scriptures, then we are able to understand what is written. So we see this revelation given in Luke chapter 24. This is a very foundational scripture. Luke 24, verse 44. He said to them, this is after the resurrection, Jesus speaking to his disciples, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. So he gave them divine revelation about the meaning of the Old Testament scripture, about how he fulfills it. Verse 46, he said to them, thus it is written. And accordingly, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Okay, so he opened their mind to understand the Old Testament scripture. This is why we come to the New Testament. We sit at the feet of the apostles listening to their teaching and through that, we're able to see Jesus Christ. Through the new covenant, we're able to see the revelation of Jesus Christ. And through the revelation of Jesus Christ, because all scripture was written about him, then we're able to turn our eyes back to the old covenant and understand the meaning of the old covenant because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the types and shadows of the old covenant. Now, how does this relate with the topic of eschatology? Well, his first coming was prophesied. It's prophesied very clearly. But it wasn't clear to those who didn't see its fulfillment. But after its fulfillment, then it became clear to those that see the fulfillment. I suggest that there is at least to some degree a blurriness that we have about the how the prophecies about events that are still future related to the second coming of Jesus Christ are going to be fulfilled. This doesn't mean that we have no understanding. We can look and we can make some, okay, this is similar language maybe this is a type and a shadow and this connects with that and so we can we can work things together i just uh, i'm just trying to encourage us that we do it carefully we do it patiently and we do it in a way that's not sectarian that we say no no i see it clear no no we'll see it clear then until then we see through a glass dimly we see through a glass that's a bit cloudy and we can't see it fully doesn't mean that we don't have enough we have plenty to know uh, that persecution is coming our way. We have plenty to know that we are going to be tempted to walk away from Christ and that we must stand firm and confess the Son. We know plenty to know that we must not let our hearts grow cold, but that we must stay alert and st be ready for the coming of the Son of Man so that we will stand before him. We, we know enough for our salvation's sake, but we don't necessarily know everything that we need to know for our curiosity's sake. We can grow, we can learn more, but as we learn more, we need to, and we, as we fit the pieces together, we need to be very carefully that we're doing it in the fear of God, not out of curiosity. And we need to do it humbly that we're not going to separate ourselves from the other believers because they come to different conclusions about these matters. So I hope this has been helpful to you. Uh, this is, uh, if, if this is the first time you've watched with us, this is part of a series. We're just kind of going through uh, all the scriptures that I can think of about eschatology. We started here in the, the Olivet Discourse, Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to just kind of continue on. So this is kind of a, an open-ended series, and we'll just go as, as long as God wills. 
and uh, I'm not real concluded on everything, and so I'm kind of learning as I go as well. And I also reserve the right to go back and say, whoops, I was wrong about that. And so there's nothing dogmatic in these things, except that we can come to passages of scripture that do have a clear context and we can say, well, that's what it's about. It might have a second fulfillment somewhere along the way and we might connect it with something else that's still future, but nevertheless, it is uh, clear. And so when we look at Matthew chapter, uh, when we look at Matthew chapter 24, verse, uh, what was it? verse 15 through 22, I think, it's very clear, uh, especially from Luke chapter 21, that this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, A.D. 70. That doesn't mean that the next passage, which is going to talk about the coming of the Son of Man, is something that happened in A.D. 70. And so we'll get into that in the next uh, video, God willing. But if you're not subscribed, go ahead and subscribe. Uh, If you found this helpful, go ahead and share and like it and maybe comment down below. so that we can push this out to more people so it can be helpful to them with the main goal of just studying the scripture in context and not becoming sectarian over such issues. Hope this has been helpful. God bless.